Welcome to The Meaning of Life, a teaching series with Pastor Mickey Bryce from Center Stage Church. The Meaning of Life is a 10-part study of the three letters from the book of John. Now, here's Mickey Bryce. All right, take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of uh, 1 John. Um, We are in the process of the series called The Meaning of Life, and if you're joining us uh, by podcast, we welcome you as well. Today, we're going to talk about a very um, well-covered subject, and that is love and hate. Um, A very successful businessman had a meeting with his new son-in-law. I love my daughter, and now I welcome you into the family, he said. To show you how much we love you, I'm making you a 50-50 partner in my business. All you have to do is go to the factory every day and learn the operation. You'll love it. The son-in-law interrupted, I hate factories. I hate the noise. I see, replied the father-in-law. Well, then you'll work in the office and take charge of some of the operations. I hate office work, too, he said. I hate being stuck behind a desk all minute. Wait a minute, said the father-in-law. I just made uh, you a half-owner of a money-making organization, but you hate factories and hate working in an office. What am I going to do with you? He said, easy, buy me out. (laughs) So... Love and hate are subjects that we all know what they mean. They differences might uh, vary just a little bit from person to person, but we know what love is, and we know what hate is. I came across a song uh, written in the last 20 years by an indie band called uh, the Avett Brothers. It's called The Ballad of Love and Hate, and it says this. Love writes a letter and sends it to hate. My vacation's ending. I'm coming home late. The weather was fine. The ocean was great. And I can't wait to see you again. Hate reads the letter and throws it away. No one here cares if you go or if you stay. I barely noticed that when you were away, I'll see you or I won't, whatever. So did you know that scientists have determined that Um, the same parts of the brain are used in both. The emotion of love and the emotion of hate are very similar in the part of the brain that's used. Uh, Only a very thin line separates the two, and I don't know exactly how that works, but uh, I have experienced, and I'm sure you have, extreme emotions of love and certainly hate. Bob Dylan said it this way, I met a young man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been wounded in love, and maybe you've been wounded in hatred. I've been, I've been wounded both ways. The Apostle John is no social psychologist or folk composer. He's going to talk to us about uh, objective truth from God. And it is truth you can count on. It's truth you can bank on. It's truth that you can invest in and use to guide your life. John, in uh, this section of Scripture, 
draws a sharp contrast between love and hate, both the love between man and God, God and man, and the love between a person and a brother or sister. Um, John is going to tell us today that God, first, that God reached out to you in love. And he's going to talk about why we should love one another. Um, I think he's going to offer us the realization that there's really two choices as you respond to what information you know about God, and that is you can either love God or hate God because of it. You can either love your brother, and when we say brother, we include all people, um, or you can hate your brother. Listen to it. Um, we are uh, in 1 John 3, so the first letter of John, chapter 3, verse 11. And some of this is not new. We've, it's on the themes that we've been exploring. It says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So there's the horizontal. We should not be like Cain, who was the, of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to, hello, lay down our lives for the brethren. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Interesting that today we heard from Reg about the uh, meal ministry. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Hallelujah. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Lord, thank you for these wonderful words of reminder about not only the blessing of love, but the responsibility of loving. I pray that we might take it to heart in Jesus' name. Amen. So to introduce this section on love, John again uses the phrases, what you have heard from the beginning. They had heard from the beginning of John's time with them what Jesus had taught his disciples. So it's referring back to the time Jesus had on earth with his disciples. He loved them and he taught them that the mark of their expression of faith in God is going to be love for others. 
So I want to explore today the truth that God's love prompts us to love. If you don't love other people, you haven't fully understood God's love for you. One leads directly to the other by its own nature. Um, the response, however, is not you. you, um, you what's the word? It's not always going to be love. There is an opportunity every human being has that you can respond to what you see God do with either love for God and the brethren or hatred. So before you dismiss hatred and say, I don't hate, let's let the word speak to you about what it means. So John's going to argue the negative first. In other words, don't be like this. That's the negative. Uh, we should not be like Cain, he says. And we all know who Cain is. Cain was the older son of Adam and Eve. He was the farmer where Abel was um, the shepherd. When each of the brothers brought sacrifices to God, Abel was the best, and he brought it joyfully, while Cain brought only an average share, and even that he brought grudgingly. One was a blood sacrifice, and the other was grain or uh, something grown. So I won't go into the difference of those two, but simply to say that uh, Cain didn't want to, I think. And what he brought, he brought grudgingly. So right there, let me just remind you that if you give money grudgingly, God's not glorified in that. We don't want it. We don't want it. Uh, it doesn't help anybody. Doesn't help God. Well, like God needs help. Doesn't help the church. Doesn't help you. So the understanding that love lived out is a free will, free will experience. That's part of what is being talked about here. When God responded with favor to Abel and rejection to Cain, Cain got angry. We've all been there when somebody got something and we thought we deserved it too and we didn't get the right nah, 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 nah. Well, human nature is to get a little, you know, angry. We had the privilege this last week of... Uh, Zale Theater winning a bunch of awards. Well, that's great, and we're glad for that because it lets us be in a position to talk about Christ. That's the only reason I ever pursued it. But there have been some years where it was slim pickings, and we got nothing. So in those years, was Zale Theater a poor theater? No, no, no. So the point is, if you get angry when things don't go your way, you're missing something. You're missing something. And John tells us that we should not be like Cain, whose response to God was hate. He hated his brother because God didn't respect his, so to speak, sacrifice. And that hate spilled over into an act of murder. John then goes on to say that there will be those in our world who do not react well to God. And this, especially if you're um, listening to this by podcast, maybe you're not a believer, you don't consider yourself a believer, you just want to find out what the weirdos talked about today. Well, number one, I hope we're not weird. I know we're not weird. But number two, uh, listen to this business about the world, which is the non-Christian world, 
And what God says will be the relationship between them and the church or people who know Christ. Um, he goes on to say that it's going to be hate. Not hate in the sense, oh, you hate something. People use that word pejoratively in our culture. We're talking about visceral, real hatred. Um, for any number of reasons, people find all kinds of faults with God. Every person that I've ever met, I think without exception, who hates Christianity, at least not necessarily, <clears throat> not necessarily violently, but just they, in every fiber of their being, they speak out against the idea of God. Almost in every case, that person has been wounded by something that God allowed in their life. The death of a parent when they were young. The loss of a child when they were older. A loss of a job. It was some sort of hard, hard, and nobody's arguing those are hard things. But the reaction to that was, this hurts so bad, the only answer I have is that God is bad. Which, of course, isn't true. And that person carries that burden for the rest of their life until they get help with it, and most never do. And so the response then to the church and to you as a believer is, I either think you're stupid or I'm going to hate you too. Okay. The response of hatred is a response of finding fault with God. And it is not just God, it's people who follow God. So whatever people feel about God, you can be sure in their heart of hearts, they feel toward you down deep, sooner or later. It's impossible for you to identify with God and not identify with that hatred. Okay. You probably heard about a man named Dan Savage in the last 20 years. He was giving an anti-bullying speech a while back to a group of high school students. He said some pretty awful things about the Bible and about God. When a number of Christian students began to walk out of the meeting in protest, Mr. Savage singled them out and called them pansies. Okay. As Americans listened to the video, there was shock that an anti-bullying campaign would be marked by such an expression of anti-Christian bullying. This is how it's going to be, though, I think. John says very clearly, do not be surprised by it. Don't go, how did that happen? John 15, 8 in the gospel, if the world hates you, know that, it's, that it hated me first. That's why. Hatred of God is going to spill over into hatred of people who identify with God. In verse 15, back to 1 John 3, John reminds Christians that hatred begins in the heart. We've heard that before. As Jesus taught, every murderous act begins with hatred in the heart, except accidental ones. That's not murder. In verse 16, John writes that as Christ laid down his life for us, we should lay down our lives for others. So let me stop right there and 
give yourself a report card. How you doing on that? How you doing? How, how are we doing? How am I doing? Sometimes not very well. How are we as individuals laying down our lives for others? Do you settle conflicts when you come up on them or do you spike them? Do you help people that are broken receive healing emotionally by probing their brokenness and identifying it because it makes you feel better than them? How, how do we do that? Do we, how, what does it mean to lay down your life? Does it just mean die? I, I don't know that I've had very many opportunities to die for somebody and said no to it, but I've had every day an opportunity to give something to somebody, and I was selfish and didn't do it. Not every day, but I'm aware of that quite often. And I wish that I understood this better because there's a lot that all of us can do to lay down our lives for one another. That we should discover that in the church more um, because we're a safe community, hopefully, and we can say, I need something, and somebody can say, well, I can give that, and we can help one another. But... Now, John's talking about laying down your lives, and he goes back to Christ. This is love in the everyday selfish act no one notices, as well as the ultimate act of giving your very life for someone. John goes on to include, again, we've talked about this every week. What do we say as far as the giving of our resources? And this is what John's talking about next. God doesn't need our money, but he does need and want our obedience. I shouldn't say he needs. God doesn't need anything. He deserves our obedience because we love him. The response of love is to give what we have to others when we see a need. It's not 10%. Most people say, well, I can't give 10% because I have bills. Hmm, maybe you have too many bills because you haven't done it. But the real thing about giving is not that God owns 10% of your money. God owns all of your money. All of it. It's his. He trusts 100% of it to you. And part of giving is first the giving of your heart. Those that have given their heart have no issue with giving their money. But if you haven't given your heart, it's really hard to give your money because you feel selfish, that you deserve it. Okay, so moving on. Uh, to withhold what we could give is to fail to do what Christ did for us. Again, the connection of understanding what Christ did for us is the key of understanding what we should do both for him and for others. Okay. Whenever you find somebody who's struggling with obedience, it's because they haven't gotten alone with God enough. They haven't received that emotional healing that says, I died for your sin, but I also died for your shame. We sang about that. Did you hear that today? Power that can uh, empty out a grave. 
and power that can cause us not to be embarrassed to be alive because we depend on Him. All right. So, he talks next in verse 18 about actions, not words. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or in truth. Well, we get that. I mean, well, we say we get it. But we often don't get it because we're pretty uh, critical of others' hypocrisy while ignoring our own. Everybody's got different recipe for hypocrisy. I would propose to you that we're all hypocrites before God. So it's just a matter of whether you're an A, B, C, or a D hypocrite. Okay? Somebody over here says, well, it's okay if I do this because I don't do this. You know, and we switch the list around over here and say, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can do only what I don't do. Well, all that's foolishness. We know that when we see it, but yet we keep doing it. We should love in actions, not words. Notice the progression. Actions, not merely words. The implication here is that loving words by themselves are hollow and meaningless without loving actions. Everybody can understand that intellectually. If you had a parent who said they loved you and maybe didn't show it very well, well, certainly you need to remember that they're broken too. And that you're a kid and sometimes the scars of kiddom are severe. Uh, as an adult, sometimes maybe we should give our broken parents a little bit of a break, but it's hard because by that time we're broken ourselves. Broken people break others. But loving words are hollow, but loving actions come from knowing truth. This is why we teach truth, so it affects your character. You do the right thing because you know that it's the right thing, and the right thing isn't what you think, it's what you do because of what you think. If you don't do the thing you know to be true, you don't know it to be true. Does that make sense? That's very hard because we actually have to become better people to be able to accomplish that, which means we have to transform. And everywhere you look, people are telling you how you can change and be better. Hogwash. Only God can do that in us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is the change agent, not self-help. Uh, not all of these things that, I mean, they can have their place, but the real source of change, the power of change is the Holy Spirit, which means you have to know Christ. No one who has the Holy Spirit doesn't know Christ and vice versa. That's where that power comes. Here's the truth. God loves me and gave himself for me. If I was the only person to ever died, Christ still would have gone, lived, Christ still would have gone to the cross. Now that sounds like an absurd example, but it points to the truth, which is God's love for me is unique. And his love for you is the same. Loving actions, 
that we then in turn do comes from knowing the truth. If you understand that God loves you, I'll never forget the day I came to Christ. I was in the seventh grade, and it was the first time that I had really ever heard that God loved me just like I was. And I was a regular old kid, uh, I think. I'm not a regular old adult, but I, <laughs> at that time I was still regular. And I, I can't tell you how af affirming that felt to me. And it didn't feel that way just because I was a lonely kid in search of meaning and purpose like every kid. It felt like something real because it was something real. And the idea that God, who was in the beginning, loved me enough to send his son Christ to die for me, it was very individual. I fell on my knees and cried and cried and cried with the realization that that is true. Not that it might be true, that it was true. And that's the day I asked Christ to come into my life because of it. So when you come face to face with what God has done, it changes your behavior. And if your behavior isn't changed, go back and talk about the... <laughs> getting in front of God enough. All right. So the loving work of God in our hearts produces a guilt-free conscience. Not because we have no sin, but because the sin has been smacked by Christ. It has been dealt with. Not only sin, but shame. Lots of Christians have had their sin forgiven and they're still walking in shame because they're embarrassed. Christ died for that emotional response to our own sin too. That shame. Yes, it's true that we ought to be ashamed when we do things that disappoint God. But part of living the life of Christ and being redeemed is understanding that Christ died for not only my sin, but my shame. And I can be in front of God without shame. Why? Because when God looks at me, what does he see? Who does he see? Christ. The blood of the Lamb, the covering. Thank God. Listen to what it says in 19. Let me read it for you again. For this we know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. You know, I come across from time to time uh, sermon series ideas of all the things that uh, are not in the Bible. All the things that God didn't say or that aren't true. And I don't like to necessarily preach sermons on the negative. One time I did and I about got kicked out of the church. Did a sermon on... Uh, Pontius Pilate being a bad guy, something like that. And um, so anyway, but the idea here is that uh, when your heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. We know um, 
if your heart does not condemn you, that you have confidence in God, the guilt-free conscience. You can stand before God without any foolishness, without any shadow of turning, as they say in the hymn. Um, and that's because, read the book of Hebrews. You can come into the very presence of God, which for a Jewish person who understood the Shekinah presence of God kills you, that was quite a shock to be able to stand before God and not be destroyed. And that's the picture of the guilt-free conscience. Now, I'm not saying that we play mind games and say we don't, didn't sin when we do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when your sin has been dealt with positionally and experientially, it's a great place to be. And when we are in that place, we should act like it, and we should understand spiritually, intellectually, through the study of God's Word, what has happened in the, in the relationship. There is no shame because Christ took it. That doesn't mean that we don't sin on occasion. It just means I don't need to always be going, oh, before everybody. Lastly, the response of love is led by the Holy Spirit. The response of love results in receiving all from God that we need. And think back in your life to the most generous person you ever knew. Put a name to it or a face. Who's the most generous person you ever knew? And the question is, what were they generous with? And I think you'll probably see the answer is everything. They were, they were generous with their love. They were generous with their possessions. They were generous with their wisdom and knowledge. They were generous with their smile. They were generous um, with their money. And why is that? Something got lined up in that person correctly. My guess is, and there are there are people in the world that are generous that aren't Christians, so this, is, this general generosity is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what comes from a person who has fully understand what Christ has done for them. They understand that they have no possessions of their own. And yet they don't worry about the image of owning a house or having a car. They're not falsely humble. Um, they have kind of their act together. And when that happens, that person has the freedom to be uh, loving and generous with you and with us. And we've all met people like that. Spirit-led living is inseparate from following His commandments. To understand his commandments is a prerequisite to the kind of behavior that we're talking about where you can choose love or hate. Um, 
So we haven't spent tons of time this morning talking about the hate part, but uh, I think when you look around, listen to what Rob was talking about, look around our political world, which is a mess, look around the response of various uh, factions in our own country politically, it's a mess. Everybody's busy telling you who you should hate. And uh, I would propose to you that the answer the, from God is that the answer is nobody. You shouldn't hate anybody. Doesn't mean you don't have perspectives about what's right and wrong. It means that when you fully have come to grips with what God has done for you, it frees you up to love somebody in spite of their ignorance. In spite of their, to use a pejorative term, stupidity. or In spite of their hatred of you. Um, give you an example. I have a lot of friends, and maybe you're one of them listening to this podcast. Um, I hope so. I know that people know that I'm a Christian. They know that I'm a pastor and might be the only Christian they know. And as far as I know, we have a good relationship and they like me. And I'm happy about that. Not seeking that per se, but I like people. And I'm happy when I get to meet people because people are interesting to me. And so once in a while I come across a person and I enjoy their presence. And later I find out uh, you know, that they're different perspective than I am, different spiritually, different politically, different socially, and sometimes lots of different ways. But I still like them because they are an okay guy or gal. And then I see something that they say to someone else in their purview. Maybe it's Facebook post, maybe it's something, maybe I heard on conversation. Um, and I am shocked at the level of emotion that's negative toward Christianity. And I'm hurt by that sometimes, even though it's not meant necessarily to me. But I'm grieved by that because it kind of explains what believers are, if you will, up against which is what John is talking about here. Don't be surprised when the world, in other words, the world without God, hates God. And if it hated God, you can be darn sure it's going to hate you. Doesn't mean that they can't be civil and you can't enjoy their you know, mutual work together and all of that. It means don't be surprised if you don't get what you want, which is support and love. From somebody. So on occasion, I mean, it doesn't happen uh, super regularly because most people aren't as hateful as they are made out to be. But once in a while, it's like, man, if that's what you say about God, you realize, brother or sister, you're talking about me. 
I hear that. That's me. Do you know that's me? And I cry over that because I think that sort of vitriol toward God is, is uh, dangerous. Um, so, which one am I today? Love or hate? Again, you have to put the object before you know whether it's love or hate. And God might be the, uh, the first object or other people or specific people. You can put it however you want. As far as I can tell, the Bible lists only three, uh, only two responses to um, God and people. And one is love and the other is hate. There's really no middle ground. They can change, but there's no sort of, well, I'm lukewarm. No, because all lukewarm is is another version of hate. Okay, um, Love with some hate or hate with some love, I don't see any of that. So that's not, what's, that's not the theoretical discussion that's going on here. Yes, it's true that emotion is extreme and it's slight in, at times. So that's not, I understand that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our behavior toward God and toward others. It is another way of looking at the picture that we've seen earlier in John's letters, letter so far, um, that picture of light and darkness. The light is what God provides, and the darkness is um, the absence of what God provides, which is what Satan provides. Those that walk in the light Walk in love. That's why we're talking about knowing God first. Those that walk in the darkness walk in hatred. Doesn't mean they can't love something in their life. It just means hatred of God, hatred of believers. Here's what I see as an application. And this is true universally, I think. Every single person. My answer about do I hate or do I love starts with my relationship to Jesus Christ. None of this makes any sense if you don't know Christ as your Savior. It begins there. You cannot change yourself successfully without Christ in your life, without the power of the Holy Spirit who breaks down, again, the song we sang, great song for today, breaks down every burden. We cannot love God until God has done his work in us. And what I mean is we come to Christ and said, I want to unite with you. I want to ask you to be my savior. You, quote, become a Christian. And at that moment, something miraculous happens. God says, welcome in. Here's the Holy Spirit who's given to you as a proof that I love you. And the Holy Spirit stays with you forever to help teach you, convict sin in your life, give you courage, help cry when you need a, somebody to lean on, and all of that. My answer begins of how to love with my relationship to Christ. Only after you know Christ can you do this successfully. So you can't just, not a theoretical proposition. Again, if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, you can't just decide to love. 
You can humanly, but that's not what we're, we're talking about. Spiritual change. And that comes from God, and that begins with a relationship with Christ. Second, my answer continues in my lifestyle. Understanding that I will still sin inevitably, nevertheless, I confess and I move on in love toward God and others. And there is a responsibility that we bear, not only in our witness, but in our relationship to God, if we continue to sin on and on in terms of willful disobedience. I'm not saying that you become a Christian based on what you do. I'm saying that obedience matters. And it matters to God the kind of life that you live. God wants it to come from Him because it will be perfect when it does. But He also doesn't want you to keep choosing poorly. And so He offers help with that. You know the old hymn, Help for Today and Hope for Tomorrow? Great is our faithfulness. That's what this is. So the good news is God loves you and just every time it's just like your parent who would say, hey, today's a new day. Maybe today's a day. Stop doing that. And do it not because you feel guilty when you don't do it. Do it because I love you and I want this for you because you're going to find out maybe the brokenness might be healed in you if you just ask me to rid your life of that. And that's a hard thing to do. Because our nature is to try. And in that sense, I mean we try by leaving God out of it. So it's, I make no assumptions about people's behavior. Oh, you're failing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm failing. We all fail. But I am saying that obedience matters if you read the New Testament. At some point, you trust God and act boldly the way you want to become. And you become that by God's grace. Stop doing the thing you know you shouldn't do. And I speak to myself first and everybody else second. My answer continues in my lifestyle, understanding that I still sin, I confess and I move on toward love for God and others. As we practice obeying God, we will fail. We are still sinful. When we do, confession produces renewed love and devotion to Christ. And we learn all over again that he died for me and he loves me and he doesn't want me to live like that. And I'm the loser. I'm not the winner. Who wins when they, oh boy, I get to keep sinning. Yeah, you do. And you lose. And the cause of Christ isn't helped by your life. Guilt, however, has been defeated at the cross. That's what he defeated. When he said it is finished, what he meant was sin has been finished. Shame has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Guilt has been defeated. And need have no power over a believer. 
We simply move on with loving Christ. Love and hate. So you decide today which one are you based on this and what do you need to do about it. Let me give you one uh, last verse from the song I quoted earlier. Hate sits alone on the hood of his car without much regard to the moon or the stars, lazily killing the last of a jar. Love arrives safely with suitcase in tow, carrying with her the good things we know, a reason to live and a reason to grow. And lastly, let me leave you with the words of Paul in Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. In other words, don't fake it. Let it be what God's given it to be, which is, I really mean it. Please accept it from me. He says next, abhor what is evil. That's a pretty serious word, abhor. You can read the definition of that if you want sometime somewhere. Abhor what is evil. Evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you today that you've given us the freedom and the ability to love you back by the power of the Holy Spirit and to love each other. Lord, we do this so relatively poorly. Help us to learn how to do it better. Thank you for your great love that was shown to us. And I pray, Father, that in our relationships with others, that we might learn to love people the way you love them. The only way to do that is to understand what you did for us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us for the next lesson in this Center Stage teaching series and tell a friend about the Meaning of Life podcast. For more information about Center Stage Church in Gold Canyon, Arizona, visit centerstagechurch.org.